Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from Caleb Duick, who is our next-gen pastor here at Crossview. Get onto the popular topic of lust. Caleb is going to be preaching tonight, I promise you, if you're feeling very uncomfortable that this is a very good message. It is a positive message, and there's nothing scary or, or lurid in this sermon, okay? By the way, next week, we're going to start a four-parter on Leviticus. I bet you none of you has ever heard a series on Leviticus, and we're going to do a four-parter. It's going to be amazing, but now, lust. Thank you, and I'm sure if uh, anything uh, sexual or related to lust comes up in the Leviticus series, you'll give it to me, like you have so graciously given this one to me. Yes, I have that privilege. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, But I am Caleb Duick. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the youth pastor here at Crossview, uh, which is why, of course, I have this obligatory beard, eyebrow piercing, and Honda Civic in the parking lot, just to check off all my boxes of being a youth pastor. But I love my job here, and I love opportunities that I get like this to preach, especially when they are just as wonderful as preaching on lust. What an opportunity. Thank you, Chris, for saving the best for last in the seven deadly sins. He gave himself envy, greed, gluttony, sloth, pride, and anger. Just easy stuff. I said, Caleb, you can do that last one. Best for last. Uh, when Chris actually asked me, to preach on lust, I actually, I was like, you know what, I'm actually excited. I am excited, uh, not because it is an easy topic to talk about, um, but because for me, of all these deadly sins, this is honestly the one that I've wrestled the most with, the one that I have, I've tried and, and I've learned and I've done this and I've tried that and I've done the other thing and I've prayed and I've fasted and the everything, and it's just the tricky one. And uh, I'm not very old, but I'll tell you what, over 10 years, um, over 10 years of wrestling with this, I've learned a couple of things, and I do feel privileged to share those with you today and hope that they can be an inspiration, uh, and primarily that they can be a way for us to break through shame, because I would say more than any of these other six deadly sins, this is the one that is burdened with the most shame. The most shame that leads to the most isolation, feelings of dirtiness, guiltiness, shame, condemnation, all those things. It really weighs on us. And uh, if it's a struggle, of course, it really weighs on us and can make us feel uh, like, like the Grinch, like we're the Grinch. And we sing the song over ourselves that we are deplorable monsters with garlic in our soul that God wouldn't touch with a 39 and a half foot pole. There's so much shame around it, right? But we are not deplorable monsters. We are children of God, beloved by him, no matter what we have done. And at the core of the gospel is the belief that our brokenness does not separate us from the love of God. It connects us to it. It is our very brokenness, the things that we feel weakest in, that often put us right at the feet of Jesus, the things that connect us most with this need for a God who is bigger and can carry stuff that we can't seem to carry on our own. Our brokenness connects us to God. And humbly acknowledging our weakness is that very path to God. That's why I'm up here today, not as an expert, but as in somebody who may be an expert in failing forward. Failed enough times, learned from things that don't work, and learned some things that do work. And so I want to look at the parable 
of the tax collector and the Pharisee, just to emphasize again that if this is an area of weakness or brokenness for you or somebody that you know, that this can be your very pathway to God that connects you to him. Let's look at this parable from Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's who this is about to be addressed to. Anybody who feels self-confident, self-righteous, I've got things figured out, here's a parable for you from Jesus. Not saying that there's any of those people here today, but if they existed somewhere outside of this church, this parable would be to them. Uh, Confident of their own righteousness and looked down, Jesus told this parable to them. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Here's our two characters, Pharisee and tax collector. Let's see what the first one does. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Don't raise your hand if you prayed that prayer ever. Internally, maybe. Robbers, evildoers, I'm not like those people. Adulterers, oh heavens no. Or even like this tax collector beside me. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Okay, this person is confident. Jesus is setting up a contrast here. We've got self-righteousness and self-confidence. This guy is here. He's holy and he's proud of it. This guy is humble and broken about it. The tax collector stood at a distance, mostly probably because they wouldn't even let him come close. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't come close because people like him, let's put them over in the corner. He would not even look up to heaven, this tax collector, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, this is what Jesus says, I tell you this man rather than the other went home justified before God. This man who emphasized humility rather than his own ability to be holy. That man, in his brokenness, is justified and connected with God. And I think specifically in this area of lust, it can cause us to separate ourselves. Again, shame, isolation, cut off relationship. But our brokenness in this area can lead us right to God. And it can teach us what our soul is really longing for. What is it that drives our lust? What are we really looking for? I want to explore that question. What does this desire, why is it there? What are are we being motivated by? Because lust, I think, is rarely about physical, just physical desire by itself. It is tied to all kinds of other emotional things. It involves the deepest longings of our soul for beauty and belonging, for intimacy, for connection, for somebody to see me, to know me, And God gave us that desire, right? He put it into us right at the beginning. This is the first thing that God says in Genesis is not good. He said it's not good to be alone, right? It is not good for us to be alone. We were designed for connection, made for intimacy, built for belonging. And I think then we can see lust as a misguided attempt to find love and to find intimacy, Let's talk about that word intimacy for a moment. I like that word, and I like a definition that I, I can't really say I've, I came up with it. I heard it like 10 years ago, and I still say it all the time. Intimacy means into me you see. Into me you see. You allow somebody to look, not just at what you project, but at really what's going on inside. You let somebody into your inner world, good, bad, ugly, Right? They get to see the inner, inner imperfections and still accept you anyways. 
That's the hope anyways. That's what we all long for. We long for somebody to be able to see us in weakness and strength and still love us, still accept us, still want us, still create belonging with us. God does that for us. God accepts us. We talk about his unconditional love, right? But we are also designed to experience connection with each other as well, where we see and we are seen. The desire to find that type of intimacy, that type of connection was given to us by God. Lust then is a distortion of a good desire for intimacy. Let's take a moment. We're going to define lust. We're going to start with what lust is not and then what lust is. So what lust is not? Lust is not just the act of noticing. Lust is not just the act of noticing. I used to think that every time I saw a pretty girl, okay, this is like, let's go, let's go like teenage Caleb. Uh, like every time I noticed somebody that I found beautiful or attractive, I had just sinned. Can't even notice them. Oh my goodness. Can everybody take a moment to look around right now? Go ahead. Take a moment. Notice some beautiful people. I'm sure there's a couple in the room. My wife's here in the front row, so just look at her if you need a beautiful person. Are we allowed to notice beautiful people? Is it okay to notice somebody that we find beautiful? Yes, it is. And for years, I lived in this anxiety of like, oh my goodness, I can't, like I, 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 I've like put blinders up and I've got to like snap the rubber band and I've got to oh, find ways to like remind myself not to look anybody beautiful. And then one day I looked at somebody and then I looked at them again and then I took a triple take and took a quadruple take. And I said, why am I noticing this person? It's not because I'm like feeling temptation. It's because something is standing out to me. We notice that which stands out to us. This woman had a Marge Simpson haircut. <laughs> I kid you not, the exact updo. And in that moment, I realized, I'm like, oh, I don't just do double takes, triple takes for people that are good looking. It's also people that stand out, right? If somebody is running down, jogging down the street in a pink onesie, you're probably going to look more than once. We notice that which stands out to us, right? We don't need to feel guilty just about noticing. So lust is not just the act of noticing. It is also not just a feeling of attraction. Chris addressed this last week with anger. Feeling anger is not a sin. It's what you do with the anger. Feeling sadness or any emotion, feeling attraction and desire also is not a sin. It's how we were made. We were wired that way. Okay, so feeling attraction Noticing beautiful people, that's not a sin. What is a sin? What can we, what circle can we draw around lust to define it? Well, after spending time uh, Googling every free uh, theological dictionary uh, that I could find uh, on this, this topic, getting their definitions, it all boils down to basically this, a strong desire for sexual immorality. Okay. Let's break that down a little bit. A strong desire for sexual immorality. So notice, I mean, the word strong, I think is more important than I thought at first. A strong desire. So you've got this urge, right? This urge, but it is for something immoral. You are meditating on, thinking about, uh, fantasy. You start to create a story in your mind about the person or the situation, Right? And you do what Jesus actually says in Luke, or sorry, Matthew chapter 5, that I uh, often just saw as like, oh, anytime you know, again, anytime you notice somebody or feel attraction, that's a sin. But Jesus says, I tell you, anyone who looks 
at a woman lustfully. Now, oftentimes it's like, period. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, you done sinned, son. Confess it. Go to the booth. But he says, you've already then committed adultery with them in your heart, right? Already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what does that mean? That means that you actually thought about committing adultery in your heart. It's like just before this, when Jesus talks about hate, he's like, if you hate your brother, might as well have murdered him. Whoa, that's a serious hyperbole. Jesus, let's just move on. Okay, it's not good to hate people. But think about, think about that. Think about what we have, a, we, there's a crime called premeditated murder. Furthermore, there are stories, I know of one person in particular, who went to jail just for planning on killing somebody. Just, again, just making the plans, thinking about it, Apply that again to lust, right? Lust is when you think about it, dwell on it, create a story, plan it out, even if you don't follow through. That is very, very key distinguisher. Another distinct characteristic of lust is that it's a distortion of love. It's a distortion of the way that the Bible defines love in about selfless giving and receiving, right? When the Bible talks about love, it's I give I, am, I, I serve, I'm selfless, and I also receive. There's this mutual, again, back to into me, you see, there's this back and forth, whereas lust is about taking, taking advantage of for my own pleasure, taking and getting, right? Let's take pornography as an example. Okay, that word is out there in the stratosphere of the sanctuary. Let's take pornography as an example. Pornography is not just a distortion of beauty where it is used, taken and used for selfish gain, it's also a distortion of intimacy. It's a distortion of intimacy because there is no mutual seeing. It's a one-way mirror, right? It's a one-way mirror. It's counterfeit connection. They don't, there, there's, there's no seeing back. You're looking for something that you are never going to get, right? It's totally unsatisfying because of that. It's empty, hollow experience because you're looking for love in the wrong place, in all the wrong places, Right? You're not going to find true connection, intimacy that you were designed for there. It's counterfeit, right? A one-way mirror. I want to read an excerpt here from a book that I would highly recommend on this subject. I'll put it up here on screen. It's called Unwanted um, by uh, Dr. Jay Stringer. He's, he's got a master's in divinity, uh, in counseling. He's a uh, doctor in psychology. Um, and uh, to date, the best book that I have found on this conversation on this wrestle, and I'm going to read a really powerful, this is the way that the book starts here, so don't come after me, Jay Stringer, I'm giving you a shout out. All right, here we go. Meet Jeffrey. Okay, this is the way the book starts. Meet Jeffrey. Jeffrey is one of hundreds of thousands of men who buy sex in the United States. He told me he had done so just on Saturday morning, and I asked Jeffrey to tell me a little bit about what Saturday mornings were like for him as a child. He replied, well, my mom would usually leave my older brother and me home alone on the weekends because she worked a second job. We were always on the verge of poverty, and she was gone quite a bit. His father had left the family when Jeffrey was 11 years old, and he continued, my older brother was more of a loner. He would stay inside listening to music or playing video games for hours. I wasn't like that. I just rode my bike around the neighborhood. I asked Jeffrey if he might have been looking for something or someone when he rode his bike so regularly. He thought for a moment and said, Sure. I remember cruising through my neighborhood trying to find girls I knew from middle school. I would ride around for hours just to get that look, just to see if they would see me. 
20 years later, unbeknownst to him, Jeffrey's Saturday morning ritual was essentially the same. The bike became an SUV, cruising around for middle school crush became something else. A mom with a second job was now a spouse whose job at a concert venue required her to work weekends. And as an adult, Jeffrey was just recreating the dynamics of his childhood over and over and over. Like most of us, though, he had no awareness of doing so. And Jeffrey is not unique. Jeffrey is not unique. He's not alone in this type of, not just unwanted sexual behavior, but also of this unconscious, like, I don't know why I do this. I don't know why I keep going back to this. Well, you need to figure it out. <laughs> you can't just try the same old strategy of holding, see how long you can hold your breath, right? So many of our accountability groups, they become this, this exercise in like who can hold their breath the longest and not come up for breath. Thank you, Chris Friesen, for that analogy earlier today when we were talking. It's just like this white knuckle, like hold on for as long as you can and, and come up like, okay, I'll go back down. And then you talk afterwards, like, hey, did you take a breath? Yeah, I took a breath. Oh man, we shouldn't take breaths. Actually, you should. Breathing is really healthy. Um, but we don't know why. And so we just try. We just try and try and try, but we don't ask the question, why? Why do I keep going back to this behavior? And I'll tell you what, you can't just blame it on modern technology and a sexualized culture. Okay, because this has been going on for centuries, back to the Bible times. And we're going to go back to the Bible here with Proverbs chapter 7. Okay, wonderful. Proverbs has all kinds of wonderful things to say about lust. In fact, by the time you get to Proverbs 7, the author has already given four lectures to his group of uh, boys that he's addressing this. They're kind of like training for the royal court, probably, uh, the people that he's addressing to. So he often says, my son or my sons. Uh, and, the, and the people in the story that he uses, is a, it's like a youth, okay, the, a young man did this, he was foolish, he should learn this instead, okay? But these lessons, the lessons that we're about to learn from Proverbs chapter 7, can be applied old and young, men and women, because at any age, and both men and women can struggle with this, right? So we are all going to learn here from Proverbs chapter 7. Here's how the chapter starts. My son... Keep my words and store up my commands within you. It's a very typical beginning verse for when uh, Solomon's getting into it. He's like, okay, snap, snap, pay attention, pay attention here. Uh, I'm about to say something important. And in most chapters, he does this in like maybe two, uh, three at the most verses to kind of say, pay attention. Uh, he gives five verses here. So clearly, this is a very important pay attention. And uh, the second thing he says is, keep my commands and you will live. Meaning that, I mean, it could be hyperbole, but like if you don't, you might die. This is like, this strikes at the very core of your well-being. This is a very important thing that I am about to tell you. So pay attention. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. That's a nice phrase that we often use. Oh, they're the apple of my eye. That means we like them a lot. But in, in Hebrew, this can be translated also the pupil of your eye, and as we know, the pupil of your eye is rather important for seeing things. Uh, and uh, at the same time, it's very small, very vulnerable. Very, one poke in the eye, and you, you could be blind, right? It's incredibly important, but it's also very vulnerable and requires protection. That is like our human sexuality, right? That's what, that's what Solomon's setting up. This is really important. Pay attention, guard it well, protect it, listen. 
Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablets of your hearts. I read one commentary that said uh, that they had these prayer bands, either you wrap them around uh, your whole hand like that, or around a finger, or even they had like a necklaces with like tablets, so you could have like a little, uh, you know, an inscription that you carried around with you tangibly everywhere you go. Again, just another emphasis on take this to heart wherever you go. All right, now Solomon switches. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. Wouldn't it be nice to have wise relatives? Um, But what he's saying here, as Chris has talked about before, wisdom is a personification of God's own wisdom. But what Solomon often does is he puts, it's, it's, like, it's like a woman, right? Lady wisdom, or this follow the, the, the advice of the woman of wisdom, or uh, treasure her, marry her, go after wisdom. Uh, here it's a sister, a relative, like keep that really close, keep that wisdom close. It's not an actual person, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not an actual person or people specifically, but it is in general, align your life with God's wisdom. Now, in contrast to Lady Wisdom, we're going to get Lady Lust. Everyone's favorite character in the story. Lady Lust, here she comes. Uh, so you got to keep yourself from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Okay, we're going to learn more about her in a moment. Um, but before we learn more about her, remember, the same way that Wisdom is being personified as a woman that represents much more, the adulterous or wayward woman represents an idea, represents lust, not specific women, right? There has been sort of uh, an unhealthy approach in some, uh, let's talk about like when a lot of men get together uh, and uh, the advice is given like, just just bounce your eyes, bounce your eyes over the beautiful woman. I got to go across the row here, oh, bounce over, like I can't look, I got to bounce my eyes away from the beautiful woman, right? And I can't even look beautiful people in the eye because I might be tempted to do something, <laughs> Right? I can't even, I, like, you know, oh, there's a beautiful grocery clerk. I, I better, like, stare at my wallet, right? Like, well, that's rather dehumanizing, right, to people created in God's image. There's got to be a better strategy than that, right? Because this, we're not to take from this that, you know, oh, like, women are just temptress adulteresses, and you've got to watch out for them. That's not what's being said here. Remember, right next to Lady Wisdom is the wayward woman. This is symbolic of how much lust can grab a hold of our hearts, okay? Regardless of age and gender. Okay, here we go. It's good. Good caveat? Cool. Thanks, Anders. All right. The next section I titled, Don't Be Dumb. Don't be dumb. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense, silly guy, going down the street near her corner, okay, the wayward woman, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading as the dark of night set in. Oh, hey, good things don't happen in the dark of night usually. Uh, this, this house, you're putting yourself in harm's way, and you're being stupid. Not having sense. Now, translate this to a common, regular occurrence maybe for us today. Uh, and I would say, like, sitting on the toilet at midnight scrolling Instagram is just probably not common sense. Probably not a good idea, right? Don't put yourself in harm's way in the dark of night, in the direction of your temptation, whatever that might be. Use your common sense. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Next section. 
Because, oh yeah, don't put yourself in harm's way because when you do, you seek, you will find, right? Jesus said that about good things, right? If you seek, you will find. But also with this, if you seek, if you put yourself in harm's way, you find, and the woman finds this silly youth. She came out, a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute. Whoa, the Bible said it, not me. Uh, And with crafty intent, She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner, she lurks. She took hold of him and... Leave it there. Gave him a nice hug. The the chapter goes on to describe what happens, but I don't want to focus so much on this as what led to this. What led this youth to be in this situation? What motivates him? What motivates us to go to these places? How do we find ourselves like Jeffrey riding our bike around the neighborhood or like this Proverbs 7 youth putting ourselves in harm's way and in the path of maybe temporary pleasure but ultimately just pain? And I think it's a, it's a core question that we often overlook and it's just why. Why? Why do I put myself here? And it's a complex issue, but we need to stop, we need to ask, and try and understand our lust. We have to ask, why do I believe that I can find belonging through this behavior? It just leaves me feeling empty. What am I really looking for here? What if we took the time to try and understand ourselves, to ask God to help you understand what's going on, to be curious rather than always just feeling condemned? And honestly, I cannot address all of the potential reasons in a sermon like this for an entire group of people. I would need a pay raise for that, to be able to do that. But I can, get, you know what, in order to do that, I'll say this, in order to really dig down, you need, you need professional counseling. Like if this is really an area of struggle, You need somebody who is trained in guiding the human heart, in understanding the human mind and the motivations. Uh, We really, really strongly encourage counseling here at Crossview. We've got an awesome list of resources. If you don't know where to start, um, just email myself or Chris or Carl or Grace. Um, We want you guys to live in emotional health. Hey, I just saw a counselor this very morning. So... We believe in it, we practice it, it's really important. And although I cannot address all the specific reasons and give each of you a free counseling session right here in the next 15 minutes, or how, yeah, 15 minutes, I can address some general things that lead us to this place of lust. And it's gonna come, first of all, in the form of the Somalian pirates. Wake up if you were sleeping. Somalian pirates, what the heck does that have to do With lust, I'm going to tell you, Somalian pirates. How many of you are familiar with a Somalian pirate crisis in Somalia? Please raise your hand. Wonderful. How many of you are aware of why it happened? Me neither. Oh, Carlos. Oh, you guy. Well, that's not my wisdom anyways. I had to research it and find out why did these guys do what they did. And it turns out the Somalian pirates used to be fishermen. Okay, that's how they got their livelihood. It's a big, it's big, big fishing area that was a, a huge source of income uh, for them until their fish were stolen by foreign fishing vessels. 
the UN estimates that before the, the pirate crisis, there was over $300 million worth of seafood stolen from their shores every year. It's like a million dollars a day of income, potential income for these fishermen taken away from them. Okay, so you put somebody in a situation of desperation, they might do something desperate and dumb. But still, you understand, okay, they're desperate. Furthermore, back on the homeland, you got, uh, you know, warlords that are, that are scrabbling for power in the country. You have political unrest. Yeah, these are the situations, these are the circumstances that lead to acts of desperation. It's not as if pirating is okay, but if you deplete their resources and you deprive them of their livelihood, they're going to do something desperate because they are. They are desperate. And our behavior is not random either, right? Lust is not random. When we experience lack, when we're emotionally deprived, we can end up just like these Somalian pirates doing something desperate and destructive even to meet those needs, even if it doesn't work because we're desperate. So, areas of lack. Okay, what are, the, what are the things that make us desperate, that lead us to seek out this behavior in the first place? I'm going to talk about three areas of lack that lead us to the behavior. Number one, a lack of delight. Yes, a lack of delight. When our brains are deprived of dopamine, of the thing that makes our brains feel good that we call happiness, uh, when we're deprived of that, we look to get it however we can. Just a quick hit, just something to make me feel good. And uh, when you're in a, in, a sa- in a state of desperation, and you know how this can happen, right? You're, you had a long day at work, it was exhausting, there was a lot of demands put on you, you were annoyed with your coworkers, your boss demanded lots of you, then you come home and look, there's more demands. Okay, here we go, let's do uh, bad dinner time, bath time, bedtime, got to bust out my very best negotiation tactics with my kids as I always do, you got to do the, uh, the, the bargains and then the threats and then the three to one countdown to the end of the world as they know it, and whew, once that's all over... Well, that's all over what? Oftentimes, we're so like buzzing from all that that we're just like, oh, I don't know how to, like, okay, what, like, what, what's, whoa, like, what a, oh, no, you're like, where's my phone? I don't even have it. That's good. I can't distract myself with it. Pull out your phone. Um, and uh, okay, what am I gonna Maybe play a phone game. That sounds relaxing. Oh, that email just came in from. Okay, now I'm working. Okay, so I'm working after work, and I'm on the phone. I'm doing the emails, right? And like, okay, all right. So now let's do that. Okay, well, you know what? It's like, uh, let's just watch some YouTube or something. And uh, oh, look at that. It's 11:30 at night. Uh, maybe I should connect with my wife. Uh, oh, she's gone to bed. Um, hmm. How else can I get a bit of delight? right? You have deprived yourself of proper rest. You just lived in distraction and continued stimulus. And then, yeah, you're in a moment of isolation, loneliness. You haven't connected. You don't really have that sense of joy and peace. And you do something desperate. How about instead of waiting till we are completely deprived and desperate, we intentionally set aside time in our evenings, in our weekends, for rest and delight. That would be more helpful. And we're going to talk more about that after we go through these other two areas of lack. Lack of deep connection. All right, lack of deep connection. So I want to go back to that into me you see, right? Because it's not just enough to be around people. As an extrovert, 
that's pretty automatic for me. I like to be around the people. But you can be in a crowd of people and be completely unseen, right? Don't let anyone in. You don't even know how to, right? You've, you've gone through your day and most of, you know, the last week pretty distracted, and now you're just in the environment, and it's like, okay. Um, and uh, we can be even this way with our, our spouses, close family, our friends, right? We seek intimacy any way we can, but maybe we don't feel like we can, like we, we don't know how, right? Most of us, we become so good at kind of masking what's going on inside, we're not truly even aware of what's going on inside, right? We don't know how to open up. I want to give you a tool that is really helpful for describing what's going on inside of you and that practice of into me you see. And it's super nerdy, people like me. It's called a feelings wheel. It's called a feelings wheel. You can Google these. You can find your very favorite color. And, uh, and you can use it uh, and uh, be really awkward on a date uh, with uh, somebody or a friendship or whatever it is. But eventually you get good at identifying emotions and what's going on inside of you and you're able to communicate it. So what a feelings wheel is, is at the core there, right in the center, you've got the core emotions, right? Sad, mad, glad. Uh, basically, like if you've seen the movie Inside Out, like the core emotions, like anger, sadness, shame, joy. You've got those right in the center there. And then from there, it branches out into all kinds of other wonderful descriptive words. Let me turn my head sideways. Uh, miserable, inadequate, inferior, and apathetic. Those are nice words <laughs> that I chose there. They're the closest ones to me. Those branch out from sadness, and they give you language for your experience. Right? So you're able to let someone in, but first of all, be aware of what to let them into. Really to become aware of what is going on inside of you. All right. The last thing, area of lack, is defined purpose. When we do not have a clear purpose, we wander just like the boy in Proverbs chapter 7. And we make desperate attempts at retaking. We feel futility, right? You know what futility feels like, right? It's like waking up on, on Sunday morning and it's like, what did I even accomplish this week? Like, did I make an impact on anyone? Is anyone reaching out? Like, you know, for me as a pastor, it feels really good when like other people initiate meetings with me. It's just a shout out to all of you. Just go ahead and initiate a meeting with me. It makes me feel so wanted, so desired. It's lovely. But I can get to an end of a week and I'll be like, huh. I just, I went through all of my regular meetings. I didn't have a single bonus one because I didn't initiate any. And if I did initiate them, it's like, well, why didn't they initiate with me? Why don't they like me? Why don't, why don't people seek me out? Am I really making a difference? Am I really wanted or needed, right? And maybe some of you are not as insecure as me and you have more like, I, I didn't get any like, you know, accomplishment this week. I didn't actually finish anything or I don't have that nice sense of job satisfaction or feel like I'm contributing to society and the kingdom of God and all those things and I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels and you know what happens in that state of futility? Sometimes you're just like, oh, forget it. That's kind of like the give up lack and I've had this many times before, where it's just like, oh, what's, what's the point? I just need a little good, I just need something to make me feel good, right? And you don't ever, like, it's not, it's not conscious, it's subconscious, right? You feel deprived of delight, connection, and purpose, and it's just like, oh, what do I do? Let's talk about what you can do. Let's talk about how we can get good satisfaction, because if your life is satisfied, if you are living in a state of satisfaction, there is little room for lust. A satisfied life equals less room for lust. First thing you should do, make time for fun and rest. 
Really. And I mean schedule it. I mean like have something fun regularly or some restful activity that you can regularly look forward to. You know what I do every day? This is something I do uh, in the mornings. Uh, I've done it for the last couple of years. Um, and it's very helpful, especially the third thing that I write down. So I start with, what is something I'm grateful for? What's something good that's going on in life? What's something I'm wrestling with? Something that's hard in life. But then my favorite, what is something I am looking forward to today? Tell you what, I have something fun planned every day. Some of you, you're like, that's too much fun. Caleb? <laughs> You're a pastor. You should not be having that much fun. Well, if, you've, if you feel like that's too much fun for yourself, try having one fun thing to look forward to every week, okay? One restful activity that you do every week. But I would really suggest, again, it's not just about fun. It's about rest, right? I mean, real activities, not distractions. I mean, real, true, restful activities. Let me give you some examples. You know, one of the greatest gifts that COVID gave me, gave me no other gifts other than this, it mostly took stuff away from me, but one of the things that COVID gave me was more time for my hobbies, my delights, the things that bring me that sense of rest, where I like lose track of time and I just love what I'm doing. So I started playing guitar again, right? I started playing electric guitar again. I started disc golfing again, started building Lego, riding my bike, reading and watching fantasy stories with my wife. Oh, hours of listening to the Harry Potter audiobook together. Just wonderful. Oops, I said another swear word in church. Um, but it just, it made us just lose track of time, this restful activity that we could look forward to, something, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. What are your delights? What are the activities that make you lose track of time? Is it gardening? One day you'll be able to do that. Just a few more months, okay? Just being outside in general, music, right? Music or, or art or smoking meat, Right? Brad Clausen and my brother-in-law, Justin, and many others. COVID was just the time to get into smoking meat. It's wonderful. Uh, is it woodworking, right? Carl Reimer and those of you who like to work with your hands, you need to schedule it, right? You can't just enjoy doing something like, oh, yes, I like woodworking. How often do you do it? Once a year. Ha. Huh. Schedule that, man. Look forward to it regularly, right? What is the thing that you enjoy, right? Alcohol. Sorry, in the last service, I actually said somebody's name. I won't do it this time. <laughs> I mean, like tasting, right? Just like little, little samples. Um, okay, before I... Let's get back here. Um, some people enjoy running, right? Some people love running. I'm not sure how you can confuse I can't breathe with joy, but some people get a runner's high. I just get a runner's low. I feel horrible. But some people are really into it, and you should do it. Keep doing it. Make sure it's in your schedule. All right. See, the interesting thing about this, the interesting thing about this, you know that research has actually shown that anticipating something enjoyable releases more dopamine in your brain than actually doing the enjoyable thing itself? Uh-huh. This is why. Like, so, yeah, looking forward to something that gives you that joy, like, all day, like, oh, my goodness, I can't wait for blank, right? And you just, that is so, it's good, right? As long as what you're looking forward to is a good thing. Uh, but like my kids, the, the, uh, a couple months ago, we went to uh, a hotel with a water slide. 
And they just could not stop talking about it. All oh, they were just buzzing, like, oh my goodness, it's going to be the best thing ever. It'll be so awesome. Oh, it's just going to just, oh my, I don't even know uh, what they said. But we got there, and it's like, oh yeah, it's a little smaller than I thought. It should still be fun though, right? And then they went away, they went and had hours of fun. After two hours, I didn't have as much fun. But they just kept going. Um, but it was the anticipation was so much a part of that, right? That's why like before a vacation, it's just like the buildup to it. It's just like, oh my goodness, it's so, so important to have things to look forward to, to take delight in and to move ourselves towards, right? Very healthy. And a good replacement again for the, the planning and the looking forward to something that is not as healthy. Second thing you need to do, make time for deep connection. Make time for deep connection. Because the opposite, this is a nice quote, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. If you want to solve an unwanted behavior in your life, you don't have to call it an addiction. If you want to solve an unwanted behavior, seek to connect. Seek to connect. And that saying, actually, it came from a study. We're going to learn not just from Somalian pirates, we're going to learn about Lab rats. Let me tell you what we can learn from an experiment called Rat Park in the 1970s by a doctor named Bruce Alexander. Rat Park was an experiment that was based on previous experiments with rats, where given the option between drug water, water laced with cocaine or heroin, and regular water, the rat took the drug water every time, without fail. So then it was like, hmm, look at that. Rats like drugs more than regular water. Okay, cool experiment. Um, but what this was projected onto was almost a fatalistic view of unwanted behavior or addiction. It was kind of like, yeah, I mean, if you've got this like thing that's bad for you, and then, by the way, the rats like OD'd and like died, and they kept hitting the water, they kept drinking it, because um, it was the only thing they had joy from in their environment compared to the, just the regular boring water. But Bruce Alexander in 1970 said, hang on a hot minute. This is not an ideal situation for the rat by itself with water and drug water, right? And this is honestly what we do for ourselves as Christians often. It's like either you got sin or you got, I don't know, being in church. And I can't do that seven days a week. So like that's the only, the, that's the only godly activity or sin. No. You know what Bruce did? Bruce. It's like I know him personally. <laughs> you know what Bruce did? He created Rat Park, where he said, you don't put a rat by itself and give it drug water and regular water, you give it a community. You put a whole bunch of rats together, and then you give them stuff to do. You give them delights, fun, and rest, toys, things to play on, things to move around on, things to engage with, things to do together in community, because that is what we are made for. We're made for connection, right? And you know what happened? because they still had the drug water and the regular water in there, pretty much every rat just drank the regular water because they were getting plenty of joy from everything else that was going on in life. They didn't have room. A satisfied life equals less room for lust. It's the same way for us. We need to live in that state of rat park. Let's all be rats together. To live in constant connection community with others. I don't mean that you have to change from an introvert to an extrovert, but I mean learn how to, when you are with people you trust, when you're with friends, learn to connect at a deep level. I've got a wonderful friend. His name is Caleb Reimer. 
And uh, <laughs> every single Wednesday, we hang out. And uh, it's just an hour. And sometimes we play pool in the back of the church. Uh, sometimes we go for a drive. Sometimes we'll go to a restaurant. Uh, sometimes we'll actually jam. Last year, we, uh, he, he would, we, I was like, you know what? I don't play my instrument enough. You want to play keys? I'll play guitar. And we go to each other's houses and jam. We set aside an hour a week to connect. But in those times, we always did an emotional check-in. It was like, dude, what was a powerful feeling that you had this week? What was a powerful feeling that you had this week? What were you wrestling with? What was something you were grateful for? Something you're looking forward to? We'd share our delights with each other, the things that, and both of us are big nerds, so, you know, we would share about the, the nerdy things that we were engaging or looking forward to. You know, I think one of the reasons why accountability relationships often fail is because they're not actually, they're focused on just not doing one thing. It's like, hey, did you mess up this week? Hmm, I messed up too. That's pretty messed up. All right, well, this is fun. Let's do this again next week. No, no one wants to circle the drain like that over one issue over and over again. I've been a part of a lot of groups and one-on-ones like that, and it's not life-giving. It's not true connection where we pursue purpose together, where we go after things together, where we take delight in things together. We were made for deep connection. God designed us that way. We were born to belong and to take delight in God's good creation and to connect with the people around us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the intimacy, love, and connection that you offer us as our Heavenly Father. It is so good to be seen by you, to be known by you and loved by you. And God, you've also designed us to experience that with each other, to experience that real love where we're seen and known and accepted where we take delight in your world together, where we find true satisfaction instead of settling for the fake thing, instead of settling for pseudo-connection and pseudo-joy, we find true joy and true delight in the things that you've really made us for. We thank you for this. Help us to walk in it on a regular basis. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.